episode four of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the activated sludge system operational issues with a couple of guests. One of our guests is Jim Huckel, who is the City of Flagstaff Water Reclamation Plant Manager. He is a certified wastewater level four operator in Arizona and a class one certified operator in Illinois with 37 years experience in wastewater. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. We also have Dave Axton, owner of Water Resources Management, Inc., and one of our probiotic solutions reps. Dave is a class A operator in wastewater and has a class two license in distribution in Missouri. He also has a class one and K wastewater license and class A water supply license in Illinois with 40 years experience in wastewater. Good morning, Dave. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am very excited to talk to you guys about troubleshooting activated sludge systems. You guys have seen a lot you've experienced a lot. Uh, we've talked about some of your war stories and I'm hoping that our listeners will be able to gain from your experience. And we will also want to share Wanda's water tidbit at the end of the program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. So before we get into all the nuts and bolts of troubleshooting, I want to ask you, Jim, about a quote you use. It says, if something is wrong, fix it now, but train yourself not to worry. Worry fixes nothing by Ernest Hemingway. So how does that apply? Our field is fraught with changes and every day, you know, plant upsets and floodings. And and if you worry about all those, you just cause yourself a whole lot of stress. You can fix what you can, but there's some days that you just can't fix anything. And so you, you can't worry about it all. You know, there's certain things that you have to focus on in order to to better understand how your system's working and understand that sometimes you just don't have any control. And, you know, it's that lack of control that scares me. How about you, Dave? Well, I, you know, to reiterate what Jim said, there are some things that are just beyond your control. And if it's beyond your control, you probably shouldn't worry about it. Just do what you can, do what's within your control and wait and see what happens. For both of you gentlemen, what is the very first thing you look for when you walk into the plant? You know, what, what's the first bit of information that you want to see? Uh, Jim, why don't we start with you? So I generally come in and check our SCADA system. I think it's a quick way to get a good overview of the plant. So I'll come in and check my, like, we have a reclaim system, so we have to check our NTUs. And then I also check, like, the transmittance, the blowers, making sure all the pumps are running, you know, and just kind of get a quick view of or overview of how the system's running. I know that if some of the numbers are nice and low, then more than likely the rest of the plant is running just fine. Fabulous. How about you, Dave? Well, for me, at, at this time, you know, basically operating a lot of uh, small package plants, I just kind of, first thing I want to do is look at the effluent and see what's actually being discharged from the system, you know, look over the processes and just get a, a visual observation on uh, how things are running and listen to make sure every, everything's running. <laughs> Use your years too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in, in a larger plant, the SCADA system is the way to go. Absolutely. Back when I was in a larger plant, that's exactly what I did. The same thing Jim's doing. Okay. Jim, you mentioned yesterday about using your senses, using all of your senses, but your sense of taste when you come onto the plant. We don't use the taste portion, but uh, what did you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, some days you don't have a choice on that. You open your mouth at the wrong time and you get a little splash. Oh, but no, for the no. most part, 
Been splashed in the face. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. But, you know, using your sense of touch, you know, touching the equipment, feeling the vibration on it, um, using your sight to make sure everything looks good. And then, again, listening to your hearing, I think, is if you work at a plant for a long time, you can almost walk into a room and and hear a change in pitch or or, or change like that. And then your sense of smell. I, I've always had a, a good sense of smell. So if you could smell something electrical burning up. And so I would I use all my senses as I'm checking the plant. Awesome. As far as internal testing and permit required testing, what, what are the day-to-day measurements we should be doing? Well, are, are you talking about such as for process control? Are you referring to process control or for effluent monitoring or? Yes. You know, <laughs> both? Okay. Okay. Well, okay. For uh, an activated sludge plant for process control, you, you know, you want to check your mixed liquor suspended solids concentration. Um, you want to check your sludge blankets and your clarifier. You want to check your concentration of your return activated sludge. You want to do a, a visual. You want to do a, a settleability test on there. You want to check your dissolved oxygen levels. I think those are all pretty much the normal ones as far as process control. Check for smell, of course, which Jim mentioned already. On your effluent, you know, obviously you're going to check you know your uh, your BOD, your suspended solids. Uh, if you have an ammonia limit, which most people do, you're, you're checking the ammonia. Um, chlorine residual, or if you're using UV light system, you know, make sure UV lights are working. I think those are all the main ones that you're looking for. Well, and I like to check the underneath the microscope and look at the bugs. Sure. Uh, I think I think that's an important one. And again, not just checking it whenever it's upset, but also knowing what it looks like whenever it's normal. I think a lot of operators, you know, they'll want to look underneath the microscope whenever the plant's upset. But if you don't know what it looks like whenever it's normal, then what do you have to base your conclusions on? Yeah, absolutely. I actually had an operator one time. He's like, look, I wouldn't know what I'm looking at. If I looked under the microscope, like, but if you looked at it often enough, you would know when things were changing. Exactly. You'll notice it. All of a sudden, I have this weird thingy that's coming out, and all of a sudden, the plant went down. Aha. You, know, you can put them together. How do you guys feel about instinct versus data in handling these, these systems? Well, since I'm a little older, I... Whenever I first started in the industry, Vodabu was more based on instinct and, you know, again, using your sights and your senses to to see how the plant was going. Sometimes you would make it on instinct. Since the world has changed and technology has come out, we have a lot more tools in our toolbox. So I think it's still, you still have to use your instincts and look at the data and see what the data is telling you. But some days the data might be telling you one thing and your gut is telling you something different. And a lot of times I will go with my gut over what the data is telling. Absolutely. And sometimes the, the data conflicts with, with itself. You'll get some data pointing one way and uh, the other data points another way. So I usually try to go with wherever most of the data is pointing. But I actually have overridden all the data just based on instinct. Because somehow your instincts, your gut feeling, it's usually better. <laughs> it usually is better <laughs> than some of the data. Sometimes it just, it just is. It's just oh, the way it is. Data doesn't lie, no. does it? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, the data is only as good as the test that's done, you know, so sometimes yeah. the data data can be uh, faulty that way. And Jim was talking about doing microscopic exams. I, I think those are very important. There isn't, a, you know, especially on the filaments, I have found 
on filamentous bacteria. Microscopic exam is really good. You can see that coming. But also, if you don't have a microscope or you don't have time or, or for whatever reason, if you do a settleability test, don't just do a 30-minute settleability test. Do a five-minute reading also. Do a, uh -huh. it, it doesn't take you any more time because you're waiting 30 minutes anyway. Because here's yeah. what I've seen this happen. When you're, if, if you do it, let's just say typically you do it you do, uh, in five minutes, your settleability is 800 and in 30 minutes, it goes down to 400 and it just runs that, that way a lot. When you're first starting to get filaments, your 30 minutes settleability will still stay at 400 for about a day or two after the filaments start, but that five minute is going to shoot up to like 950. So when you see that five minute, go from its normal 800 to 950, but the 30 minute is still going down to 400, that is that is your signal right there that, hey, I probably have, that's the onset of filament starting. They're going to show up in your five minute settleability probably a day or two before they start up and, and, and or show up in your 30 minute. And that's crucial time because if, if you can nip it in the bud, if you can start treatment right then or start making some changes right then before they take hold, because the filamentous bacteria are such a fast growing bacteria and their respiration rate is a lot higher than the, the good bacteria that we want in there, the stalkciliates and the free swimmers and the, the filaments can just overcompete them and wipe them out real fast. That's when filaments start, they come quickly. Yeah. So that's why that five five minute sellability is people, they get tired of doing it. They're like, okay, it's the same every day. But when the filament hits, it, it can actually, you know, save you a couple of days. Absolutely. And, and I completely agree because I, I, we do the five minute settleability and you definitely can see the difference. And then, you know, we were talking about, you know, do you believe technology, but technology, if you didn't do your calibrations or if the probe went out of calibration overnight and you come in and you're believing that information and you don't go out and verify, I think that's where we tend to run ourselves into trouble. You know, I teach my operators, you know, whenever you're checking the plant, you know, it's nice to look at the cicada screens, but go out and actually take a look. Because again, you know, the foam on top of the aeration basins, how the aeration basins are, or the turbulence in them, you know, if you break an airline or whatever the case may be, you can see those. But, you know, you just can't see some of that stuff from sitting behind the SCADA screen. That's right. I mean, I mean, the color of the foam, the amount of foam, all of that plays a role in your process. And I'm sure you've seen the differences in that, Jim. Is that correct over the years? Oh, yeah. You know, you start getting mm -hmm. that dirty, greasy foam. Yeah. You know, you're getting a little old. Or you come in and, and you start to see a lot of white foam and you're like, uh-oh, something bad might have happened last night because, <laughs> well, you know, we're, we don't see that white foam very often. Right. You Typically, you'll see that at the, at the start of when you're starting up a plant, when, you're, when your mixed liquor suspended solids is a low concentration. So your food to right. mass ratio is out of whack. And yeah. see, if, you get a, if you get a heavy organic, say, say you've, you've got a good mixed liquor in there. Let's just say you're running three or 4,000 milligrams per liter. But if you get a shock load coming in, you might see some, some billowing white foam come up. So then you know, okay, that, that's a good indication. Oh, okay. I've got a shock load coming through here. Yeah. You've, I probably, had some you've probably seen that. Yeah, early in my career, we had some heavy industrial users, and we used to use bugs in order and the powdered bugs to bring the plants back. But yeah, you would come in and and we would go out and test the the influent. The pH would be two, so it would just come in and just wipe out the plant. Oh my gosh! 
Yes, yep. and I, I've had one customer that had a pH of three and then a pH of nine within the same week. And it just <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah well, you know that, that that happens a lot at industrial sites. I've got one right now that does that. It, it'll go from it'll go from four to a, you know ten. But we've got a, a pH control system there that, that that helps that somewhat. But you know what? Here's what I found out on that. And anything happening in your plant, it's all about how long it's happening. So your plant can take a little bit of a swing for a short period of time, but if yeah. it's substantial and it stays there for you know and it, and it you know especially if you got a large plant but if it stays there for a while then then you're in trouble <laughs> yeah well when it, when it comes to stay <laughs> yes right well you know, it, a few years ago i was given a tour and so i was it's like second graders but the mom was walking around and she's like well you know i want to dump my motor oil down in <gasps> down the drain can i do that and i'm like Honestly, if you just you did that, I would never see it. I said, the problem is, is you're going to tell two friends and they're going to tell two friends. And before we know it, we're going to be an oil treatment plant and, and that won't work. And she looked at me and she goes, that makes sense. I won't ever do that. And I said, thank you. Right. Yes. Education is a big deal. It, I think I think education is a huge deal. And before the whole COVID thing started, we were doing quite a few tours and we do everything from college students down to about the sixth grade. And then again, it's interesting to watch them come in and learn that they never even knew that we had something like that in the town. Yeah. Right? You know, okay. most, most of that's out of sight, out of mind. I'll tell you, another, yeah. another group to give a tour to would be, say, a city council, because they are making decisions for your treatment plant. And the more they understand about it and the more they know and then the more they, they understand what the cost is associated with it the better decision they're going to make in that because sometimes they get elected and they, they just, you know, <laughs> they, they just don't understand. Well, you know, yeah. what, well, here's what most people are. Sewage is 99.9% .9 water, 0.1% solids. It's all water. I mean, the, the, the amount of solids in there is very little proportionate to how much is in there, but people don't even see sewage that way at all. Yeah. And, if, if they if they get a tour and they actually see, okay I, I take them right to the influent okay here's what's coming in this is you know and then you take them to the to the outfall the effluent and it's all crystal clear and nice and you say okay this is what you're paying a sewer bill for this is what you're getting that, that proves to be very beneficial once they see that okay this is actually cleaning up all this waste and it's keeping the stream clean and I, I think there needs to be so much more of that yeah I, uh, what, I, what's I agree. your thoughts on that? I think it's very important. I've actually taken my own kids and my mom to wastewater plants just to educate. And, you know, as we continue to talk about the different issues we've got coming up, you know, the customers or users cause a lot of issues, whether they were, you know, know it or not. So education, I think, is so important out in the industry. You know, share what we know yeah, it, and share, you know, and maybe we bring more people into the industry. Who knows? The worst thing, we're our own worst enemies because. We, we don't like to sit here and go, well, look at what we did today. You know, we put out quality effluent 99.9% .9 of the time. But the only time you really hear about treatment plants is whenever something bad happens. And, Absolutely. and again, <laughs> and, and we, we, yep. we truly need to go out yeah, there we, and go, look what we did, you know, yeah. the last four years. We never had a permit upset and no permit violations. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get 
10 inches of rain in two hours and you're just like, there's nothing left for me to do. Yeah. That's right. Well, I mean, yeah, well, we, we, yeah, we go, we go unnoticed uh, until there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you bring up a good point, Jim, is flow issues. You know, there's those seasonal issues this, that we see in wastewater plant. And you mentioned, you know, the, the rainfall, that's influent and infiltration right there. And how much does that impact you? Well, for up here in Flagstaff, we actually feed another product for a carbon source because our our wastewater thins out too much. So we have a number that we set, it's like 189 milligrams per liter of BOD. Once we hit that number, then we turn on that extra carbon source so that our bugs still have enough food to survive so that whenever the rain goes away, that we're still ready to treat. We don't have as much of the issue on one side of town as we do the other. So it's interesting in the same town, we don't have the same problem. But Jim, I got a question for you. Are, are you guys, how does it affect you guys hydraulically? Are, are, is your system uh, big enough to work and handle the the extra hydraulics or? Yeah, so far so good. We haven't had a rain event yet that has just blown us out, but I'm sure one of these days we will get one of those, you know, just catastrophic rains. I know the town that I came back or left in Illinois to come out here, probably about two years after I left, the whole town was flooded. And, and the city manager was talking to the person who took my position. And I'm like, you know, there's nothing you can do. Whenever the streets have a, six inches of water on them, I'm like, and with, with the inflow and infiltration problem that we had out there, I said, there's nothing left you can do. And he goes, I know, but he doesn't understand. And I'm like, well, then you have to educate. Yeah. You know, I, I recall, I recall that area at one time. I remember when they, well, I don't remember when it was, it was years ago. They got an eight inch rain and like, two or three hours. It was crazy. It was just a, a crazy amount of water. And, you know, when that happens, there's nothing you can do. Here's one thing that I do tell operators to do when they're, when they're getting rain and, and let's just, you know, uh, their clarifiers starting to, to blow solids out of there. Turn the blower off, turn your air off, let the sludge settle down in the aeration tank because then in the transfer pipe where, where they're transferring from the aeration tank to the clarifier, if you turn that blower off, and that sludge settles in the aeration tank, you're you're more likely to just transfer clear water. And you're not transferring the solids and then you'll lose or if what if any solids do come over, they're gonna be a lot thinner. You know? Mm -hmm. Now there's oh. restrictions on that. You can only you can only leave the blower off so long. I, I understand that, but uh, and, and I've done the same thing over my career, but it's always fun to watch the operators look at you. You want me to do what? Turn off the air. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because yeah. you 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 got you got to get that sludge down, you know, to where it doesn't transfer over. Or you know, some plants uh, that are designed, uh, some of the extended air plants, if if they're designed for contact stabilization, you know that that's a wonderful process there. Some plants are valved to where they can switch over from extended air to contact stabilization. So basically what you're doing is you're taking about 80% of your aeration tanks offline. And your contact tank is small. The, the, uh, the solids concentration in there is, is a lot less. And you run it in the contact mode. The only downside to that is that you don't have a good population for nitrifying and removing ammonia, but it, that's where that's where you got to make take the lesser of two evils. Okay, am I going to have a little bit higher ammonia going out here, or am I going to lose all my solids? Well, I'll take the little bit of higher ammonia. Have Have you used the contact stabilization before, Jim? Like for industrial? I have. Yeah. Well, and not in industrial. I actually had a treatment plant that was contact stable. 
And uh-huh. then we, we switched it back over to conventional because we were having some other issues with the facility. But you're yeah. right. We could switch back to that. And if we had a, a high, high flow event. Well, yeah. And, you know, originally that, that contact stabilization was actually invented. It was, it was invented back in the fifties by a, a couple of operators down in Texas. And it, it, they had an industrial waste going into their plant and it kept just blowing their plant up. I mean, this industrial right. waste was too strong for it. So they kind of developed this. I mean, you know, I like that. And, and operators should try, they should try to develop. And Jim, I'm sure in the 37 years you've been doing this, you've probably tried some things that not everything works, but sometimes it does work. When you, sometimes uh, you have to be a little <laughs> unconventional in yeah. your thought process. That's right. And, and that's what right. I tell my operators that's is right. get outside the box. You know, yeah. whenever, whenever the, whenever things are going bad, don't stay in the box, come out of the box and think of a different way to try to fix your problem, whether it's, yeah. you know, digesters foaming or, you know, aeration basins that are just up the wazoo with filamentous, which is a technical term. I never knew, really knew that until a few years ago. Um, <laughs> the wazoo, all right. <laughs> up the wazoo. Yeah. Up the wazoo. Um, but, but, but again, you know, you have to be able to adapt to the plant. The plant is not going to adapt to you. And I think learning that flexibility really yeah. is what makes a good operator. And again, I yep. think over time we have to teach people what it is to be an operator. It's not just going out and writing down the numbers every day. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, you're not droning. You know, it's no, not, you can't do the same thing. I, but, I agree. But with that. like Dave said earlier, Dave said earlier, you know, you know, you go out, and, you know, you look at it and it's always the same. It's always the same. So we tend to get complacent whenever we do that. And so, well, it's always going to be the same. But no, what we're really looking for is that subtle change to go, uh oh, something something new is happening and we need to start paying attention to that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So let's let's move on to some some of the mechanical issues right there at the head work uh screening. Uh what what are some of the things that you have to deal with there? I mean, I had a customer that had an adult size bicycle come in in their main line. I was actually really impressed. Well, hopefully there was a person on it. <laughs> no. well, I, I didn't see any person, but the bicycle yeah. was like, whoa. Well, unfortunately, cool. whenever I was back in Illinois, I knew of another plant that somebody had put a body into the into oh. an upstream manhole and somebody went down to go rake the bar screen and that's what they came into. Um, there was a high flow event, like we were just talking about. Sure enough, decided to flow on in. Yeah, it's, unfortunate it's, part you know, of it. Yeah, well, we see all sorts of things that come in. You know, toys, money. You get people who jewelry, call you up. To, jewelry, diamond rings, well, absolutely. Yeah, well, you get the lady who calls <laughs> you on the phone and says, hey, can you find my diamond ring whenever it comes into the plant? And I'm like, well, <laughs> do you know somebody has any, you know, slight mechanical skills? I'm like, it's more than likely in your P-trap. And so, and she's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, why don't you give it a try? Bar screens, you know, I used to work with commonators and mechanical, or it, now we have mechanical and, and the manual bar screens. And and I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing is those flushable wipes that truly aren't flushable. Um, and hopefully they get picked up on the bar screens, but if they don't and get into the inflow pumps, you know, it can really reduce the capacity of those pumps. Yeah, if, if people would just use, it just, use i hate to say common sense i i, I don't mean it but but i mean if they would just not put a lot of those wipes in there they would be so much better off so much it just causes so much problems yeah yes they do 
I, I, I talk about that as the three P's, pee, poop, and toilet paper. That's <laughs> it. Those are the only three things right. that go down. But, you know, kids being kids, they're going to flush something weird sometime. That's well, just how they are. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll date myself. The weebles that wobble. I don't know how many yes. of those I pulled off a manual bar, bar screen. Because, <laughs> you know, the kids will flush them down and you sit there and you go, oh, look, toys. Awesome. Awesome. All right. How about primary sedimentation then? What, what are some of the issues you guys see there? I was, I was just going to say, you know, the main thing I, you know, you do have a potential for a little bit of odor on one of those. If you get a lot of floating solids there and your skimmers aren't being taken care of very well, um, you know, you're generating a primary sludge. And, and most if, if you don't have an anaerobic digester, you're pumping it to an aerobic digester. Although the primary sludge helps that digester settle a lot better when you're trying to settle and decant solids, primary sludge is settle so much better than secondary sludges do it, it'll re, it'll remove about 35 percent of the bod and i think about 40 to 60 percent of suspended solids and about 90 to 95 percent of your settable solids so if you're looking to get a clean F, primary effluent you know they're they're good for that i don't know that they that they really put those in a whole lot anymore i know they used to but jim uh, do you know if they're still putting those in now or well and and i am a great fan of primary clarifiers i worked at a plant that didn't have primary clarifiers and we used to get all sorts of filamentous mostly nicardia all the time mm-hmm. and and we'd have to go in and clean out those those aeration basins because now that primary sludge is now settling out in the in the aeration basins instead of out in the primary clarifiers oh yeah so it doesn't go I am away a huge no so i'm a huge fan of primary clarifiers but the challenges that you have with them you know is it circular is it rectangular the circular ones don't take up as much footprint but the rectangular ones the maintenance is a little bit easier to do on them where with the circular ones it gets quite pricey whenever one of them goes bad Mm -hmm. and then you know you still have that grease issue and you know my operators always hate pumping grease because usually if it's on a rectangular one the wind's always blowing from the wrong direction whenever they're trying to skim them off <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but you're right they do the water that they send out going to your aeration tank is a lot cleaner it, it actually you know any, i guess any anytime you can keep debris from getting into your further down your plant the better off you are <laughs> Well, and I agree, but sometimes we talked about it a little bit yesterday, I think, is is that sometimes it takes out too much. So my one of my supervisors, he actually takes primaries and secondary clarifiers offline, um, depending on what the flows are, what, what the incoming load is, so that he can kind of control the food going up into the aeration basins. And again, it's a great tactic, you know. Just because you have the equipment doesn't mean you have to run it all the time. You can take them offline and rotate through them. Again, rotation through equipment is really important. Don't just turn it off and then leave it off for eight years and then expect it to work whenever you, you come back. I always tell people, because they're like, well, why don't we just shut it off? And I'm like, well, I'm going to buy you a brand new car. You're going to put it in your garage, and 10 years later, you can go in and drive it as much as you want. How well do you think that car is going to run after 10 years of not running? That's right. You know, th- these plants that are built for 20 years in the future, they, they typically have, uh, um, you know, more than what they need at that time. And I've seen people just leave leave one off for a long time. And, and I say the same thing. I say, you got to exercise it. You got to rotate this stuff because it's just going to seize up. First of all, a valve not being used, not exercising that valve is the worst thing you can do because when you do need to use it, 
sometimes they're going to be seized up. You've probably seen that, haven't you, Jim? I actually worked at a plant, and and my old boss would make sit. You would sit there, and you would go out once a month and turn the couplings a half a turn on yep. all the equipment, and and then so he retired not long after I started. So we started firing up all the equipment, and we ended up having to rebuild it all because all the bearings were bad because it just creates a flat spot on it. Same thing with secondary clarifiers, primary yep. clarifier. Doesn't really doesn't really matter. Anything that has a bearing, if you don't run it, it's not going to run real well or real long once you start it back up. It's yeah. kind of like buying that buying that brand new motorhome and parking it out in the driveway and letting it sit there for two years <laughs> without doing exactly. anything with it. And, and, and the seals will go bad. They just, they just, yeah, it's not good. Got to use it or you rust. It's just like us people. We got to we gotta exercise or we'll rust. <laughs> oh, no. If you're telling us to exercise too, now you're asking for a lot. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta exercise too. Come on, that's Come just on. that's just going out and doing rounds. Go out and do rounds right. and reads. You get plenty of exercise. Up there you the go. stairs, right. down and the stairs. That's right. Yeah, there you go jog jog across the campus. Okay, couple of couple of cartwheels, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> okay, so let let's move into the big portion. Uh, aeration and th this is just a whole can of worm. When you're working with aeration or have an aeration basin or system. What's, what should you be measuring and what, what DOs are you looking for? I want to keep my, my DOs around two, which is, you know, liter, the, right? milligrams per liter. Yep. Which is the standard book answer. But again, sometimes you have to adjust depending on what your loading is. If you know you uh -huh. have a heavier load coming in or, you know, and, and luckily for me, I have DO control out on my aeration basin. So it's pretty much taking care of it all for, for itself. But if you're working at a smaller plant, you are the automatic control. And understanding that you are yeah. the control, that that you're you have to go out and make those adjustments. You know, if you have a heavier load with diurnal flows coming in, you know, you might have to turn it up a little bit in the morning and then turn it back down in the afternoon. I think that's really important. You know, going in and cleaning your aeration basins and making sure all your diffusers and your headers and all that equipment is running well um, will serve you really well in the future. We talked a little bit about yesterday. I have a new probe that I have out there that grows bugs on it and what it does mm -hmm. is it sends out a millivolt signal so that we can see if a toxic load or something comes in that really affects those bugs and the nice thing about it is you never have to clean the probe it never has to be calibrated and you're growing your own bugs on it so um, we're looking at that to put that not only in the plant so that we can see what's going on in the plant but put it out in the collection system so that we can see what's coming in got it yeah nice yeah, if I, I could, if I could add that, you know, uh, as far as the aeration um, on DO, you know, you want to try to maintain at least one milligram per liter. I mean, at least one milligram per liter. But two, as Jim said, that's textbook target. You know, that, that that's if you have that luxury, you can do that. Uh, but, you know, also your DO can get too high. If it gets too high too long, it can cause you problems in your clarifier. So yeah. uh, an, another another problem that I've noticed in aeration is uh getting grit and the, uh, the settling down around your diffusers. I mean, we've taken some tanks down where they had, you know, the diffuser was covered, you know, down in the bottom, you had two, three foot of grit down there. Ooh. So cleaning that, that becomes a challenge. That way, that's, that's why, if, you know, if you have grit removal in your plant, great. <laughs> if you don't, that's what you can expect to have happen is that you get a lot of grit built up down there. And then it's, it's a really big pain to uh, um, take that up. Also in aeration, if you're adjusting the air, sometimes 
you can, if you turn the air down a little bit, you know, you're not going to keep all of your mixed liquor suspended solids suspended. Some of it might settle out. So a, a, a person needs to watch out for that because then they're thinking, oh, geez, you know, I'm, I must be having a kill off here. No, not necessarily. It's just that you don't, you know, you had to turn your air down for whatever reason and there's not enough mixing going on there and, and you, some of your sludge is settling on the bottom. Um, or or when you go in and you, you crank it up, suddenly your mixed liquor concentration shoots up 500 milligrams per liter real fast. And you're like, hmm, what happened? Well, you got to remember that you turn the, you know, when you, the, you start adjusting the air on there, you can certainly affect your concentrations in there. Um, well, and Dave, Dave's grit story reminded me of a time and I wasn't there yet, but they had pictures of, they lowered a, a lawnmower with a plow blade on it down into the bottom <laughs> of an aeration basin what? and they were moving the grit, they were moving the grit around with that so that they could push it down to a vector to suck it out. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, you realize carbon monoxide, <laughs> 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 yeah. but and I just kind of giggled, but you see some stuff like that because you think it's a really good idea, but you also have to think about all the other problems that come along with putting a lawnmower down in the bottom of an aeration. You know, I right. haven't ever heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It was you ingenious know, I, at the time. Yeah. yeah I'll yeah. tell you what, you know, you, you know, they, they tell you, they say to, and, but it rarely happens. They'll say, oh, you know, take your aeration tanks down every two to three years and clean the grid out. Well, easier said than done. Well, especially <laughs> well, if there's only if one. You, <laughs> right. If you don't have, if you don't have redundancy and, and redundancy yeah. is what really hurts us, or, you know, you haven't upgraded your plant and you're running at max capacity and you just can't take your, your equipment offline. That's what I yeah. think what would really is a challenge for a lot of operators. And especially yep. right now, you know, we had the, the financial crisis back in 2008, which slowed down a lot of things for treatment plants. But now with COVID and the economy being hurt, I think we're going to see a lot of the same things. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's always hard. Always hard on the operators. I love the information you guys have given on that. How about nitrification? And for the listeners, that's taking ammonia, using microbes to create nitrates and nitrites. And what possibly could go wrong with that? Right, guys? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you, want, you want to go they, first, they, Jim? Or you want, they, they, are the, the super, they are the super sensitive bugs of the, the bug world. Um, they are. It's really easy to overwaste and, and, and just take them out of your system. You know, they're affected by pretty much everything and anything that you can think of. And, and they're usually the first ones to be affected by it. You know, so it's it's such a challenge with. And in here in Arizona, we have to both nitrify and then denitrify. So it even adds another step to it whenever you're getting to it. So what we've done is we've, you know, brought some products on site so that if we start to have problems with our nitrification just for, you know, a toxic load that comes in or whatever, that we can kind of restore them a lot faster. We do have IFAS on the other side of town and, uh -huh. and integrated fixed film activated sludge. And that one does not, the nitrifiers grow on the little plastic discs that are in there. So it doesn't seem to be as affected as, you know, conventional activated sludge. Yeah. Oh, well, I call these guys the divas myself. I'm like, they're the divas. <laughs> you know, their they're latte is too hot yeah. and their name wasn't spelled right or you know, whatever. They, I might they start using well, that one. And they're, they're, they're very finicky. They're, they're so temperature sensitive. Um, for every 10 degrees, uh, 
decrease in that water temperature, their, their activity is cut in half. Every 10 degrees, it's cut in half. So in the wintertime, when you get, a, you know, the, the cooler temperatures in there, you may have to carry a little bit higher mixed liquor suspended solids to achieve the uh, removal of ammonia. But, mm -hmm. And they, they require more oxygen than the other bacteria. But they are very sensitive in temperature. When it gets cold, they just, they're like bears. They hibernate. They just like, not bad enough. <laughs> well, I, I had oh, a paper, for a while. I had a paper plant call me from uh, Canada. That was, they were negative 10 and they couldn't nitrify. Yep. And I'm like, well, do you have heaters? You know, how warm is the water coming in? And when they gave me all the temps, I'm like, you're screwed. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know I mean, for forever. Yeah. You can't I mean, do it. Yeah, you, can, 10 you, degree. Can, you can, you can only raise that mixed liquor so much. And yep. if you get to a certain point and that water gets too cold, well, we'll see it with snow melt. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because again, we have an inflow issue. So whenever that snow melts, it comes straight into the system and it heads down there and those bugs get it. And they're like, Oh no. Somebody better give me a winter jacket because it's too cold right now. Right. Well, you know, and also in the wintertime, the specific gravity of, of the sludge particle becomes less because as water gets colder, it's heavier. So that particle of sludge does not settle through that clarifier nearly as well in the wintertime as it does in the summertime. And so then huh. here in the wintertime, you're trying to raise your, your concentration and then the sludge isn't settling as well, so it's a double whammy problem. It's yeah. Um, to fix one yeah, problem, you create another. Yep. Wintertime creates its problems. It absolutely yes. when it comes when it comes to nitrification. Well, and how about heat? I mean, like here in Arizona, you know, we get up to yeah, 115. <laughs> yeah, well, heat's great. <laughs> no, no, this way. Yeah. No, no. You have to go to you have to go down to Phoenix because their their wastewater temperatures up in the 80s and 90s degrees. So. They have a, a whole different problem. I know I was talking with another operator who worked down there, and he's like, because he, whenever I first got here, he goes, your bugs are freezing. And I'm like, dude, these bugs aren't that cold. I came from Chicago. Flagstaff doesn't get as cold as Chicago. So then he was explaining to me the problems that they used to have down in Phoenix. And it's a whole different issue because everything's so active because it's so warm that yep. a lot of treatments happen out in the collection system. Oh, yeah. I, I absolutely believe that because I've seen the manholes smelled the odors as you go by <laughs> in the summertime. Oh, yeah. The hydrogen sulfide? Yeah. yeah, right by the Chinese restaurant. It's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> no extra charge for that. <laughs> I'm like, can I avoid this intersection? <laughs> okay, so you talked about the... We talked about nitrification quickly. With denitrification, we're taking those nitrates and nitrites out and trying to get to gaseous form of nitrogen. So you've got the divas up front. How does denitrification work with them? Well, we just had this issue oh, a couple months ago because our flows cut down so much, the DO coming through the aeration basin. So then the second anoxic zone, we were having DO pass through into the second anoxic zone, Ooh. which is where the denitrification is going to take place. So the bugs, they don't care whether there's oxygen or, or nitrate. And so they just, they were going after the oxygen. So we ended up having to put up an ORP meter and, and reduce the oxygen coming through the, the DO coming through the aeration basin. How about you, Dave? Well, I, you know, uh, I don't have to denitrify here. So 
Uh, we really don't oh. have that problem. If we denitrify here, it's because somebody had the sludge return down too low and the sludge is set in the bottom of the clarifier too long and we're getting uh, floating sludge in the clarifier. And I remember yeah. those days back from, but it's funny as you move across the country and you go to different places. I've worked everywhere from Maryland to here out in Flagstaff, you know, where in Arizona right now, there's really no, not a whole lot of talk about phosphorus. And I know it's a little bit off topic, but you know, back in, the East Coast and in the Midwest, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about denitrification. So it's it's funny as you move around the country and go to different plants in different places, what your limits and, and what you have to treat for. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter that a, a state over doesn't do it. It's in your permit. So you right. will be doing it. But, you know, it depends on who's writing the permit, <laughs> what, their, what, what, what their agenda is, you know, and, and no, seriously. And, you know, everybody has a different agenda and, you know, we just do what we're told <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. I'm always for advocating for yourself, though. But, uh, Jim, you were talking about denitrifying on your side. How about retention times? What are you what are you trying um, to do there? Our, our retention times are really low. So our second anoxic basin is probably uh, an eighth of what the rest of the aeration basin is. So it uh -huh. doesn't take very long for that to happen. It's just that you've got to make sure that you bring that DO back down before you get into the anoxic zone. And again, I'm not a big fan of ORP, but in that case, I do kind of like the ORP because it, it can help you with those lower DOs because most DO meters can't get down that low. That's some really good advice. Awesome. Okay. So we're moving from nitrification, denitrification to secondary sedimentation, where nothing bad happens because everything bad has happened up ahead of it, right? It's it's probably sure. one of the most, I think it's one of the most finicky parts of the plant, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. It, 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 yeah, everything's running fine. And, and again, you know, I've worked at plants where, you know, you'll have, Everything and every everything upstream looks really good, but you'll have a, a fifteen foot blanket, and it's just like, so did the brass pumps quick? You know, are we not wasting? What's our problem? And you're like, no, it just doesn't want to settle, and and the filaments don't look bad, and you're just like, this makes absolutely no sense. And so we've I've gotten to the point where um, I like to use either uh, aluminum chloride or, or aluminum sulfate or uh, polyaluminum chloride. And a little bit of anionic polymer. It was funny whenever I first started at a plant, I was talking to one of my supervisors and he goes, that's cheating. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, using chemical to make sure that your effluent is good. I'm like, this isn't a win. You know, this isn't one of those. It's not a poker game. This is a game that we always want to win. That's not cheating. That's making sure that we're winners. And after that's a while, smart. And after, <laughs> yeah. And after a while, after we, he and I talked for a while, he goes, you know what? I get where you're coming from now. I'm going to start using chemicals whenever we have an upset. And I'm like, well, that's the way that we need to think about it. You know, we just need yeah. to get it back, back to normal as quickly as possible. And again, that polymer can cause more problems downstream. But again, you got, if you have sand filters or disc filters, you can yeah. help cure that. But then you might have to go in and clean those again because you've, you know, fouled them with polymer. Yep. How about pin flaw issues? Never had it. What's pin flaw? Never what? heard of that before. 
No, no. It, it really That's what the sand me. filters are for. <laughs> well, well you, you know what? You know here's here's what here's what I have found that co- that has the biggest effect on pen flock is your return activated sludge rates. Mm-hmm. If if you've got your RAS set too high, uh, you know your RAS should be a percentage of your incoming flow coming in, and if your RAS is too high, you're going to create some little bit of turbulence down at the bottom of your clarifier, and, and that's what causes your pen flock. Although, but it can be high flow too, you know, high flow. But if you come in in the morning and, and you see some pen flock in there, if if you reduce that RAS a little bit, that all settles down. Yep. Because think about it, that RAS is removing that sludge from the bottom of your clarifier. And if you're taking it out of there too fast, you're creating a little bit of turbulence down there. And that little bit of turbulence is what will cause that pen flock to flocculate through your clarifier. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I agree. And, and, and the thing to really figure out is how your plant runs. Again, I've run plants all over the country. And no two ever run the same. I mean, I've had two plants that are identical or, or similar in the same towns and they don't run the same way. And mm-hmm. understanding how your plant runs and, and what mixed liquor that's good for you and your return weight, your waste rate. I mean, I've worked at a plant where we would increase the waste and the mixed liquor would go up. And you just yep. kind of sit there and look at each other and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, you know what? And, and here's what I try to do is people will say, people will say, well, what's the best number? What's the best mixed liquor for, for that plant? Or what's the best uh, MCRT for that plant? Or, you know, what, what, you know, sludge age, whatever. And I'll say, you know what? I'll get this plant running by visual observations and then I'll collect data on it while, while we're doing that. You know, and I'm sure you've done this, Jim. You get the plant running, you get it running, you collect that data, you look at the data and then you know, okay, it runs good with an MCRT of 10 days or 12 days or mixed liquor of this concentration or, or whatever. It's, you know, it's, uh, or, or a RAS uh, concentration of, of this level. But I don't think anybody can, can just say, well, this number here, choose this number here and, and run your plant. Then that's what's going to be good everywhere. Because like Jim said, they're all different. Well, and, and I like to look at five years worth of data. And again, people go, well, why? And I'm like, well, is it dry out right now? Is it wet out right now? Is it snowing yeah. out right now? What's yeah. the wastewater temperature right now? That's right. And, and, have, and having that long data trend really helps you nail the, the decisions of, of, of what we think we should do. And again, but whenever you first come in and, hey, can I see your process control data? And they go, we don't have any. Okay, well, let's start there. And start cleaning <laughs> some process control data, and but under, with the understanding that you know it's going to be three or five years before it actually does you any real good. Yeah, uh, what worries me is when I walk onto a site and they've got a package plant and they don't even have a, a flow meter and everything is yeah. manual, and I'm like, yeah, that's where I just start rubbing my forehead, going, okay. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome, welcome to my world. Yes. <laughs> get 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 yourself a bucket and watch and go out there and do it. Just figure it out. You know, I mean, unfortunately, that is, you know, that just it kind of happens. Um, it but, does. But yeah. and it's not just it's not just package plants. You know, we had a, a, a pipe that we used to lower at one of my plants for wasting. And, you know, you would count the notches and that was how many gallons per minute it was. 
Um, and I'm like, yeah, well, how do we know the notches are still right? <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, you know, what we used to do, sometimes we would measure the tank. and We knew, okay, every inch is 306 gallons. Okay, we need to waste 1,800 gallons, so we would waste six inches because <laughs> we didn't right. have a flow meter. You know? Yeah. I mean, oh, it's just, you, been there and do done what that. you got to do. Yep. Do yeah. what you got to do. Now, Math is a wonderful skill for wastewater operators. Yeah, I, I, my children hear that as well. They're like, "Well, we're not going to become operators." I'm like, "Maybe one of you will. Maybe my grandchildren will." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so of all the bad days, you now have solids going out the door, and uh, you know that causes issues for disinfection. It causes issues, you know, for UV and chlorine. How do you guys handle that portion of it? What you said before is turning off the air to the aeration basins for a little while. Yeah. That has saved me more than more than once. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's really, you know, you're kind of limited on what you can do, you know, especially if, you know, you can't stop the flow from coming in, you know, just it's coming in and you that that's right there, turn the air off, you know, maybe try to adjust your RAS rate a little bit, but. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're blowing solids out there, uh, your disinfection system is basically null and void at that. <laughs> it's right. just, well, it's, you know, the other thing, yeah. the other thing I've done is I've turned off the RAS. So and just yeah. let it sit yeah. in the clarifiers. So yeah. you can turn off the if, if you're really getting desperate and then you let it build up for a little. And again, you can't do it for very long, but you can turn off the RAS for a little while because that takes some of that hydraulic loading back off the clarifiers because you got to remember Whatever you're pumping back in RAS, or at least slow it down, you know, so that you can buy yourself some time while you're trying to get through that surge of high flow that's coming in. Jim, you are so right on that. I'll tell you what, so many operators do not, as a new operator, new operators, it takes a while to learn that. But what you said there is so true. That is, that's, we can tell you're a seasoned guy. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I got gray in my beard. (laughs) <laughs> That's right, because you know what he's because when you when you turn that razzle, that that hydraulic flow, whatever you're sending back to the aeration, that much is coming back in, and so it, it stops that. But it also allows that sludge, if it's if it's filaments, to possibly concentrate a little bit to thicken up. Because that's what's happened. That sludge blanket, you know, if you got filaments or whatever, it's it's thinned out so much, it's just like fluffy all through the clarifier, and you just lose it out the top, and you want it to just compact. And I'm glad you brought that up because I I hadn't thought about that right now. I've, I've done that before, but um, that's a really good point. Yeah, it, it's been years since I've had to use that one, but it's it's a nice little trick to to kind of buy yourself a little bit of time. And again, it doesn't buy yeah. you a whole lot. But sometimes that's all you need is that little bit of time to get you through. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Because the most important the most important thing is keeping the solids in the plant because as the flows start to return back to normal, you're going to need them or else you're going to not be able to make treatment. Again, we talked about the nitrifiers. If you wash them all out, then you're not going to make treatment anyway whenever, whenever you get back to whatever we say quasi-normal is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I I think we mentioned it yesterday, you know, um, you're always you're always anticipating when I do this, it's going to affect that. And this is what you're always anticipating the future. You have to, you know, you you have to. Okay, if I waste this much right now, okay, how's that going to affect me? You know, later, whatever you're you're always trying to interpret what's going to be happening. At least that's been my experience. Is, Is that kind of the way you do it, Jim? 
Yep. It's, it's an interesting dynamic, the whole treatment plant, because no matter what you touch, it affects everything else. Yep. And, you know, even if you, you know, if your sand filters are in high backwash because you're washing out solids, so you're returning that back to the plant, then all you're doing is increasing the hydraulic load back to the head of the plant. And, and so it's just, what do I do? It, it's like Absolutely. the tiger by the tail. Really? Exactly. You know, sometimes your chlorine contact chamber becomes the solids holding tank. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it. it's true. You know, yeah, we can pump it out later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, that, that's being real. That's just being realistic. I mean, it's it's not a perfect world. You know, but you know, it's crazy. I mean, what's to comply? Think about it. You're expected to to never to never have a violation to comply 24 seven what's perfect you know i mean you can't do it it's just it's no. not there you know you can do the best you can but um i think most regulatory agencies kind of see that too if, if you're trying and they know you're trying and, and you're you know it's, it's if if somebody's not doing their due diligence then i think there's where the problem is but sometimes even I've, with your best if with your best efforts you're going to fail. Yeah. Well, and I've always found being open and honest with the inspectors, whoever they are, you know, I would call them and go, Hey, we just got, you know, eight inches of rain in the last, well, I'll use my better one. It was four inches of rain in 20 minutes. There's nothing more that I can do. And, and here's what we see. And if you want to come out and take a look, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, you know, you called us, you let us know, you know, if you have any other problems or if you need any more assistance from us, I find that they're usually pretty helpful. It's whenever you don't tell them and they find out on their own that things don't go as well. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, and, and there's a sense of relief by telling it because then the monkey's not all on you. It's like you're right. letting other people know what's going on. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That open and honest policy, you know, you tell your boss, you tell, you know, the regulatory. And here in Flagstaff, we have a regulatory compliance manager. So I call him up and go, hey, we're having a bad day. And then he calls down and says, hey, they're having a bad day. And they're like, okay, well, it was a, it was last year uh, we had a heavy snow melt. So we were going to go over our permit limit for, uh, for flow. And we called them up and they said, you're not the only one. So it's not that big of a deal. We understand that, you know, the snow melt and the rain that we've been having are, are just causing everybody issues. And, and that, that's awesome when everyone's communicating. I, it has yes. actually, well, well, it's always concerned me when I've gone onto a site and the way that the people know that they're having issues, they're blowing through all their chlorine. <laughs> and I'm like, um, have you taken a sample? <laughs> do you, do you, yeah. do you know if you've disinfected at <laughs> all? <laughs> oh. um, well, I, but that, that communication thing I think is really huge with the staff too. You know, mm -hmm. I share yes. the budget with my staff. I share, you know, all, all, they tell me too much information with them, but I'm like, but wouldn't you rather know than not know? And and again, I said, someday you might be in my position. And it, wouldn't it be nice to start learning the things that you need to do now instead of waiting until, oh, he's gone. Now I got to learn all this. I said, I'm trying to teach you what you should be doing as a supervisor, as a manager, so that so that you understand the things that you need to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree with that 100 percent. And I think that your people will trust you more. If you, oh, yeah. you let them in, people want to feel like they're a part of it. You know, the opera, yeah. it's, I, I think that's really great management. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I am a firm believer in team and, yeah. you know, maybe I do share too much information, but I think I'll let them sort out what they need to know and what they don't need to know. Yeah. 
And the other topic that we didn't really touch on too much was safety. You know, I think yes. safety is, is huge at treatment plants. It, it, there's so many different ways to hurt yourself there. And, and, and having that safety culture is really difficult because, you know, I have a lot of younger operators right now who think that they're invincible. And I'm like, you're not. You're, you're someday there's going to be, and, and that complacency part rolls in and all that. So it, it gets really, I think safety is a huge thing for us in, in our fields because there's so many different ways to hurt yourself, whether it's gases or drowning, electrocution, you know, being caught in a pump or a motor. It's just, it's just crazy. And if you've been around those, then you understand the dangers that are inherent with this job. Now, now be careful, yeah. Jim. We want people to come into the industry. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, it, 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 it is. I mean, you know, you can get electrocuted, you can drown, you can have something fall on you. I mean, you can get gassed. I mean, no, I, it's, it's, it's kind of nasty. <laughs> well, and, and, That's true. And so, so I preach safety all the time. I have my, my staff takes a safety course at least once a week on, and we just rotate through. Before COVID started, we would have a safety meeting every week where we would talk about safety and I would bring up old horror stories about what I've seen and maybe what I've done in my past and go, don't do what I did learn from my mistakes and, and try not to do the same things. Yeah. 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 I, I had someone tell me once and goes, look, I can replace all the equipment in the world, but I can't replace the person I lose. And I, I think that's really true. It is. Well, I tell them I want them to go home better than what they came in in the morning because most of them haven't had their coffee yet. So they're a little grumpy. So <laughs> I... <laughs> Oh, my. <laughs> well, you know what? It, it's, it, it's nice to go home to and, and feel like you, you accomplished something. I'll tell you, I take people down to the outfall and I always say, no, you know, if you're having a bad day, and I don't mean like like an effluent problem, but there's there's other bad days you can have other than your effluent. And I right. and you go down to the go down to the outfall and look at that nice, clear, beautiful water going out, and you think, okay, I'm making a living doing this, and it feels good. Absolutely, I've done that many times. Well, and I used to do that, but I also used to do it on my tours. But in our final or in the contact chambers, I would take a quarter. And I would flip it and send it down into the tank. So we were about 12 feet above where it would land. And I go, heads or tails? And they're like, that's heads. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty impressive because you're looking through eight foot of water and you're six feet above that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good measuring stick. <laughs> that's an excellent measuring stick. <laughs> Just right. don't lose too much money down there. Then it becomes like one of those fountains you where know, kids go. No, no. <laughs> then I send my operators down there. Hey, go good man back my quarter. <laughs> Here's the scuba gear. See, and here's here's the, you know what you you can throw a few fish in there, and if they last, you know everything's great. Yeah. <laughs> One of my effluents did have bluegills swimming around in in the chlorine contact chambers. I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. what do you guys Gosh. do? Go fishing? Yeah. <laughs> fish fry Fridays. Woo. There you go. Yeah. You, yeah. You know what? It, I, I think it, I'll pass. It, it really is. It. It is an honorable position. It is. Um, it is. You know, it, yep. People people don't understand it a whole lot, but it really is. I mean, if you've, like, if you've been in it a long time, yeah, I'm sure, Jim, you're proud of it, right? <laughs> oh, I am. Yeah. I, have a, I have a great passion for what I do, and, and I've really enjoyed this career. And, and the yeah. reason that I like it is because as soon as you think you know something, something will happen and you'll be like, huh, never saw that before. And yep. so it's, it's, it, you're always learning. 
And I, yeah. and what I tell my operators, like whenever they're going to a training session, I'm like, if you can learn one new thing in that training session, then it was well worthwhile. That's the same thing. Whenever you go to work every day, if you can learn something new about the plant that you go, huh, never did that before. I think it's, it, that's what makes this job so much fun. It's never the same. And you know, what's, what's really nice too, if you go to a training seminar, you know, you'll, you'll learn things at, uh, in the actual training, but just conversing with all the other operators who are there. Um, I've learned a lot from that, haven't you? Oh yeah. Well, mm-hmm. even on 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 this podcast, I'm mean, like, you know, and you start talking about something, and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. You know, you were talking about the grit down on the aeration basin. I'm like, oh yeah, they put the the, the lawnmower down there. You know, yeah. and it's, and it, and it, but it's funny as you as you talk to people. You know, you sit there and you learn and, you know, you hear about their experiences and, and, you know, some people come up to you and go, Hey, I have this problem. And, you know, you go, well, did you look at this? Did you look at this? Did you look at this? And they call you up, you know, a couple of days later, Hey, you know, that really helped. And I really appreciate it. To me, that's one of the best things in the world. I used to do a training class in Illinois. And, uh, so we were teaching operators how to, you know, going in for their certification exams. And I was at a, a conference one time and a guy comes up to me and goes, you know, I really appreciate you taking all that time. I passed my test and it's all because of you. And I'm like, no, dude, you took the test. I was just the guy up in front of the room trying to teach you what, you know, the things that you didn't know. But those are some of my, yeah, it's some of, that's my, one of my proudest moments whenever you can help somebody, you know, yes. and, and, and they succeed. Yep. Well, you know, I, I used to encourage the, the guys start, it's like, okay, work towards getting your, your higher classification because then you're proving that you're more valuable, you know, that, that you know more and then you can probably make more money and, and maybe get a higher position. That's the other thing I tell my operators, I'm like, what I'm teaching you, you don't want to live in, in Arizona anymore and you want to move to, you know, Chicago or somewhere else. I said, these skills are transferable. You can take yep. them anywhere you go. And the more you learn, the more valuable you become. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And that, and I love that. I love that about the industry. It's very proactive in helping each other. Uh, yes. You know, I, I've just been amazed by it because you don't always see that outside of the operators themselves. You certainly don't see that a lot of times between different engineering companies. But I, I really love that. And I love the environmental feel. And the pride that we take in the industry of creating clean water at the end of the day. I, I, I've never taken yeah, the Zen moment that you talked about, Dave. Maybe I should go Zen sometimes with the effluent. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's well, tell you, it works idea. for me. It works for me. It's, that's oh, that's it, what it's all it, about. It works for me too. Sometimes I sit there because people are like, you know, we talk about how much clean water you've put out. And I'm like, I'm in the hundreds of billions of gallons if i haven't even made it to trillions so far me too I'm like, me too yep. I, i'm like i'm like that's a rewarding thing that i've cleaned up enough water for billions and trillions of gallons that's right that's awesome i concur and I, yeah. well and again i think you know the most important thing because we talked about a little bit about engineers and it has to be that teamwork you know i've, I've mm-hmm. been at plants where you know the engineer and the contractor or the engineer and the owner don't get along and the project tends to fail, but it also includes the equipment manufacturers. Whenever you start a project like that, you have to become a team and, and, and sometimes teams argue, but in the end, you're all looking to, to make that project successful in the end. 
and you have to figure out a way to work through those differences. Absolutely. Every, everybody, everybody wants the same thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, when I was younger, I, I, I used, I used to be at odds with a lot of engineers when I was a young operator, but, <laughs> uh, and, and sometimes rightfully, sometimes rightfully so it was rightfully so. And I'm sure but, there's some out there who, who might hear this might still say that Jim's still at odds with engineers, but I do <laughs> try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, I try to listen a little more, but, uh, here's what I do is say, come out here and operate this. You need to come and operate for a little while. And then, and then it'll help you when you're designing. <laughs> that's my that's my solution to them. No, and Come I operate. I would say I think that's valid. I mean, I I would promote you know as a I actually started in the wastewater, uh, you know, operating from an industrial point of view. But when I went into the engineering field, other than walking through the plant, no one had spent any time on the site, and. I'm like, you mean, other than that walkthrough, you, you've never gone through a day of operations. We, we have no idea what's happening because it's halfway across the country and no one wants to pay for an engineer to go out there. But I think, I think it's valuable to have them walk in the operator's shoes and to see the site as an operator does. Well, I had a, an engineer friend that we were working on a project with, and he, he ended up having to run one of the treatment plants that he designed. Uh-huh. And he goes, it, the funny thing is, he goes, now I understand why you guys get mad at us. Whenever we don't put a plug over here or a hose bib over there, I said, yeah. but that's not all your fault. I said, the operators, whenever they're looking through the plans, and again, I let my operators look through the plan sets before we build whatever new structure we're going to build. I'm like, look for hose bibs. Think about those things and, you know, an electrical outlet here or an extra light over here, things that are going to make your job easier. I said, because they don't know that. They know that they have to put in so many in a certain room, but they don't know exactly where you want to put those in to make your job a whole lot easier. And yeah. and so after after he was done, he's like, I understand why you uh, yell at engineers now. And I said, well, good. <laughs> so, so. Okay. You know, I, 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 can, I, I can tell you one of my best experiences with an engineering company. This is, and this is a positive one. Uh, this wasn't that long ago, a few years ago. We had to do a major upgrade on a, on a, a, a big industrial plant, uh, it was for a, a soda manufacturer. And I had been at this plant helping them for at least four or five years. I knew what the problems were, and I had a pretty good idea of what, what needed to be to, to solve it. Well, I actually got to be in the position to bring in the engineering company of my choice. They were a design-build company. So that put me in a really good position. And I interviewed a few different ones and I said, you know, any one of you would be okay. But one of the stipulations I had with them, I said, you'll, you'll design it, but we're going to use my concept. I've, I've already figured out what the problems are with here. I'll, and we'll go over that together and we can go through all of it. But I have a concept. I'm going to choose the concept of what I think will make this work. And they let me choose the concept. They designed it and built it, and it turned out beautifully. <laughs> that is my good, positive, wonderful engineering story. Teamwork. <laughs> teamwork. Team, teamwork it was, teamwork. was the key. It was, it was teamwork. And Jim, Jim, I'm sure that you've been involved in some upgrades or new plants where you might have had a concept that you wanted, you, but you didn't get to use it. 
and you'd have thought, man, if we had done this, it probably would have turned out better. Or maybe some where you actually <laughs> did get to use your concept. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had one right before I came out to Arizona where same thing, we sat there and we were building some new anaerobic digesters. Um, and well, we were doing some aerobic digesters and anaerobic digesters. And so I'm like, I have a, I have an idea for automatic wasting on the aerobic digesters. I said, we're going to put a suspended solids meter on it. We're going to put a blanket indicator on it. We're going to put an automatic valve and we're going to make sure that the equipment can turn off all by itself. And they were looking at me like, you're out of your mind. And so, <laughs> so, so I ended up leaving before we actually got the project completed. They called me up and they go, you know, that thing works really well. And I said, well, I said, it makes sense. I said, we have the technology. Why wouldn't you make decanting off an aerobic digester automatic? And and yes. so so it's been five years and it's still working really well. Yeah. Great. I, I, I really do think, you know, like you're saying, teamwork. If you know, on the engineer's part, we hear from the operators what they want. And what's not important. just the plant manager, not just the plant <laughs> manager and not just the public works director. <laughs> right. You need to get down to the guys that are on women that are the boots on the ground. The people that are turning the valves or monitoring the systems every day. I, I think that's very valuable. It, it makes up the difference. Yeah, I agree. Having even some of your staff come in and sit on some of the meetings so that they can sit there and hear what what the plan is and going, you know, that's not going to work. Because but saying did you guys that's think not going to work. <laughs> it's not right. enough to sit well, there and, and think and, it and then never share it. <laughs> well, and, and I tell my staff, I'm like, well, if you don't want to share it with the engineers, I said, come share it with me and I'll tell them that, you know, hey, did you see this? I know I, I went to a plant one time and they said, well, I said, well, why is this messed up? And why is this messed up? Well, we knew it wasn't going to work, but we didn't tell them because they never asked us the question. I said, that's <laughs> oh not teamwork. And right. I said, you well, know what? All they did that, that created the problem for them because they're the ones who are having to run it. Well, what I told them is I'm like, you can't yell at the engineer anymore because you didn't give them all the facts. Well, they didn't ask for all the facts. I said, no, they came out and they asked you and they're expecting you to tell them everything that you know. And if you don't, that's not their fault. That's your fault. And they just kind of looked at me and they weren't very happy with my answer because I'm, I'm like, you know, if we tell them everything and they mess it up, then then we can feel free to go yell at them. Well, yeah. you know, the way I look at it is if, if, if you're the one that's going to be there operating the plant, you better be involved because whenever it's all said and done and in and they're gone, you're the one left there having to run it. So you better exactly. be involved yeah, or you, you don't have a complaint. That's right. Better speak yeah. up. All right. I think we're, you've gotten to the point where we've discussed this pretty well, but I, I agree. You know, both sides have got to be at the table and both sides have got to speak up. And uh, with that, was there any other case studies or examples from the field you guys wanted to share before we continued? We'll be here for a couple more days. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll just... <laughs> I know you guys got like, what, about 80 years of experience between yeah. you two? So yeah. there's, there's plenty yeah. of stories. Okay. Which decade? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. Then we're going to go on to the Wanda's Water tidbit. So this is my mom who sends me information about wastewater or water she finds and asks my opinion on it. Uh, so this is a part where we share something that's unusual and sometimes even brilliant about water. And I don't know if you guys had heard of it before, but have you heard of the Salab International Museum of Toilets? I had not until you had sent it the other day and then I went and looked at it. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of it either, huh? I, I didn't either. You'll find it in New Delhi, India. 
<clears throat> and it was established in 1992 by uh, Dr. Bendeshwar or Pathak, a social reformer. And basically, he wanted to raise awareness for the need for sanitization. And unsurprisingly, we're going to put a video link into the uh, podcast blog area. But it's known as one of the top 10 weirdest museums from the Time magazine in 2014. So I, I don't know if you've looked at it before, but they, it talks about how John Harrington invented the first flush toilet in 1596. So he's one of my heroes because I like the flushy toilet. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's got stuff from 2500 BC. And what, wow. they're, uh, what they're really proud about was that there was also toilet jokes, comics, and posters. Potty humor. Potty wow. humor. <laughs> <laughs> I like potty humor. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's not a joke you haven't heard yet, but um, there were some interesting comics and posters. So I, I recommend checking on the link. Check it out. Uh, right now, they're not open yeah. for visitors. And I I can't even get to Delhi right now, New Delhi. But um, it was really kind of fun I, you know, to see what people had evolved over the years. Yes. I Like yeah, I said, absolutely. I went and looked at it after you sent it. And I went, huh, I didn't know there there was that much history involved with toilets. Yeah. I'll be darned. <laughs> well, and if you ever get a chance to go to WefTech, um, they actually have a history of sanitization for the U.S. as well. And it's a, an exhibit you can go visit there. I really want to thank you both for your time. It's been awesome talking with you and just hearing you guys go back and forth. I now want to shadow you both for a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> see what awesome new stuff I can learn thank you very much for joining us and we hope you'll join us sure. for our next podcast thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water wastewater and soil find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com